So what have you given up for Christ? What have you given up for Christ? A couple years ago, a man by the name of David Platt wrote a book that was turned into a New York Times bestseller. He wrote a book called Radical. I know maybe a couple of you have read this book or are reading it. I read it a year or two ago, at least most of it. And he tells a very interesting story in the third chapter of the book about one of his experiences in a, an Asian country where it is, an, it is illegal to be a Christian. You and I have no idea what it's like to be in such a persecuted place where to even mention the name of Jesus jeopardizes your life. And so David Platt, who is a Baptist megachurch pastor in the United States, he is, some call him the, the youngest megachurch pastor in the world, however one is able to determine that. He tells the story, and I want to read it for you. It's a few pages long, so stick with me for a second. But, but listen to the experience of not only... Pastor David Platt, as he is there in this country, but those who experience this week in and week out. So just stick with me for a second as I go through the story. He says, travel with me back to the underground house church that I described in chapter 1, which is what he started out with. He said, on my first day with these believers, again, this is in an Asian country, they simply asked me to lead a Bible study. Please meet us tomorrow at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, they said. So I put some thoughts together for a short Bible study and went to the designated location where about 20 house church leaders were waiting. That's what they have there in those Asian countries, house churches. You can't have a church like we have here because to do so would obviously indicate that you are worshiping God. He says, I don't remember when we started, but I do remember the eight hours later we were still going strong. How many hours? What if I told you that church was going till about six o'clock tonight? We get a little upset when we go to 1230, don't we? We would, we would start, I'll try not to, you know, preach after every sentence, but we, (laughs) we would study one passage and then they would ask about another. This would lead to another topic, then to another. It was late in the evening and they wanted to continue studying, but they needed to get back to their homes. So they asked the two main church leaders and me, can we meet again tomorrow? What if I told you we were coming back tomorrow? I said, I would be glad to. Shall we meet at the same time? They responded, no, we want to start early in the morning. I said, okay, how long would you like to study? They replied, all day. Thus began a process in which over the next 10 days, how many? 10 days for 8 to 12 hours a day. How many hours a day? 8 to 12, we would gather to study God's word. They were hungry. Many of us are not hungry, are we? They were hungry. On the second day, I introduced these relatively new believers to the story of Nehemiah. I say, oh, they're new believers. That's why they're so passionate. 
Oh, maybe we should all be new believers. I gave them the background and history of the Bible book and showed them in Nehemiah 8 the importance of God's Word. Afterward, we took a short break, and I saw the leaders talking intently about something in small groups. A few minutes later, one of them approached me. We have never learned any of this truth before, and we want to learn more, she said. Then she dropped the bomb. Would you be willing to teach us about all the books of the Old Testament while you are here? I laughed. Smiling, I said, all the Old Testament? That would take a long time. By this time, others were joining in the conversation. They said, we will do whatever it takes. Most of us, listen to this, most of us are farmers and we work all day, but we will leave our fields unattended for the next couple of weeks if we can learn the Old Testament. So that's what we did. The next day I walked them through an overview of the Old Testament history. Then we started in Genesis. And in the days that followed, we plowed through the highlights and the main themes of every Old Testament book. Imagine teaching the Song of Songs to a group of Asian believers, many of whom have never read the book before and just praying that they don't ask any questions. On the next to last day, we finished in Malachi. I had 12 more hours to teach, and I had no clue what to say. Once you've taught Habakkuk, what else is there to cover? So the last day I started teaching on a random subject, but within an hour I was interrupted by one of the leaders. We have a problem, we said. Worried that I had said something wrong, I responded, what is the matter? He replied, you have taught us the Old Testament, but you have not taught us the New Testament. I smiled, but he was serious. We would like to learn the New Testament today, he said. As other leaders across the room nodded, I had no choice. For the next 11 hours, we walked briskly from Matthew to Revelation. Just imagine going to a worship gathering in one of those house churches. Not an all-day training in the Word, just a normal three-hour worship service late in the evening. This is now shifting scenes a little bit. The Asian believer who is taking you gives you the instructions. Put on dark pants and a jacket with a hood on it. We will put you in the back of our car and drive you into the village. Please keep your hood on and your face down. When you arrive in the village under the cover of night, another Asian believer meets you at the door of the car. Follow me, he says. With your hood over your head, you crawl out of the car, keeping your face toward the ground. You begin to walk with your eyes fixed on the feet and the man in front of you as he leads you down a long and winding path with a small flashlight. You hear more and more footsteps around you as you progress down the trail. Then finally you round the corner and walk into a small room. Despite its size, 60 believers have crammed into it. They are all ages from precious little girls to 70-year-old men. They are sitting either on the floor or on small stools, lined shoulder to shoulder, huddled together with their Bibles in their laps. The roof is low, and one light bulb dangles from the middle of the ceiling as the sole source of illumination. No sound system, no band, no guitar, no entertainment, no cushioned chairs, no heated or air-conditioned building, nothing but the people of God and the Word of God. And strangely, that's enough. That gave me shivers as I said that. And strangely, that's enough. God's Word is enough for millions of believers who gather in house churches just like this one. 
His word is enough for millions of believers who huddle into an African jungle, South American rainforest, and Middle Eastern cities. But is his word enough for us? Sobering question, isn't it? Is his word enough for us? We ponder that question as we sit in our climate-controlled church on our cushioned chairs. We've just had beautiful music that we've enjoyed. But what have we given up for Christ? Anything? I want to read a quotation for you that I neglected to get into our study guides. But I want to bring it to your mind and attention as we begin this little sermon today. And I trust that you will be fine if we're here till 6 o'clock, right? I've guilted you into it now. (laughs) Question, what is justification by faith? If you were to answer that question, how would you define justification by faith? Notice what Ellen White says. The first definition of justification by faith. It is the work of God in laying what? The glory of man in the dust. It is the work of God in laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. When men see their own nothingness, they are prepared to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We want to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, don't we? We want God to strip back everything and get us to the lowest denominator. and just It's us and God, and it's us before God as He places His righteousness upon us. But God seeks to lay our glory, to lay our, ourselves in the dust. He wants to strip all that aside. You know, this past week, some of you know, kind of humorously perhaps, that my dear wife and I did this little fast this little cleansing, detox, whatever you want to call it thing, where we decided we would give up our scrumptious food. I'm saying that a little tongue-in-cheek. But we would give up our scrumptious food, and all we would eat is fruit and vegetables and nuts. Now, Camille is still on the fast. I, I, uh, I, I determined yesterday that the point had been made, and I, I was able to, <laughs> to end the fast. I did it from Monday to yesterday afternoon, and you know it was an interesting experience. And I just want to I just want to preface this by saying Jesus tells us when we have a fast, don't be telling it to everybody. So I'm not saying it in a boastful way because it wasn't some spiritual exercise where I was trying to you know uh, earn my salvation or be a good person. It was just a way to cleanse my system of a lot of junk that's gone on gone in there. But you know, as I was going through this fast and I was doing this cleansing there was something that kind of that that did dawn on me a couple days ago I realized that perhaps this was the first time that I had actually deliberately given something up and that's sobering because I interact with a lot of church members, I interact with a lot of people who are studying the Bible, and on numerous occasions I ask these individuals to give something up. Give up working on Sabbath. Give up pork. 
give up alcohol, give up this, give up that. And I did a little self-introspection, and I, I asked myself, have I actually given up anything for Christ? I mean, I've been raised in the church. I've been baptized into the, the bare minimum that a person is supposed to have in order to be a Seventh-day Adventist, right? I'm a vegetarian. You don't have to be a vegetarian, but I am a vegetarian. I'm a vegetarian, been a Sabbath keeper my whole life. Have I really given up anything for Christ? Open the pages of your Bibles this morning to our scripture reading. We're going to go to a very well-known passage. A very well-known passage that we have read probably many times before, whether in this gospel or the other gospels. Notice what Jesus says, these words that are in red letters, if you have a red letter Bible. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We're going to look at verse 23. Luke 29, verse 23. Notice these words by Jesus. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, And follow me, and then verse 24 goes on to say, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will do what? Will save it. Those words we know very, very well. Whoever desires to come after me. Now we need to pause right in that first clause before moving on, because so many times when we read this passage or we hear it preached, we go right to the punchline, don't we? We talk about how much we need to have ourselves be denied. We talk about how we need to take up our crosses. We talk about how we need to follow Jesus. But Jesus, he makes a point to begin with. He says, if any desire to follow who? Me. You know, for, ver- for a long time, and this is something I'm just beginning to realize, for a long time in my Christian experience, I thought that Christianity was anything but about a person. I thought Christianity was about a bunch of rules. I thought Christianity was some abstract, arbitrary check mark that I needed to have in heaven, in the heavenly books. Christianity, for me, was not about a person. It was about, as I said, this check mark, this arbitrary black and white, okay, either I'm in, you know, in, in doing the law or I'm not doing the law. And this is something that I'm still having to remember is that it's about a person. See, it can get very abstract at times. Jesus doesn't say, if any of you want to follow after righteousness, if any of you want to follow the rules, if any of you want to get to heaven, he doesn't even say that. He says, if any of you want to follow after me. So Jesus, at the very heart of this invitation, we can't jump over it, Jesus is inviting us into relationship, isn't he? I know I've probably said that a lot recently, but we need to understand that, that Christianity is about a person. And you know, it makes a whole lot... It gives a lot more context to anything, to everything when it comes to the Christian walk. It's not just about following the rules. It's not about having, you know, saying the right things or knowing the right things. It's about knowing a person. So we can't jump over that part, can we? We can't jump over that and say, okay, what is it that I'm supposed to do? What do I have to do? What's the, what's the requirements for me to get there? Of course, there was a young man that came to Jesus and asked that very question, wasn't it? What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
It wasn't about a person. It was about a destination. It was about a status. It was about having your name cleared in heaven. But Jesus says, if you want to come after me, Jesus, as we learned a couple weeks ago, so often he framed his his invitations in that context of relationship. And he framed his heart being broken in the context of relationship. But notice that first, that, 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 that third word that we have in our English versions, if anyone does what? Some version says wish or will or want. My version says if anyone desires to come after me. That's a very, very important word because, again, many times we pass over this first clause and we go right to the second part. We need to deny ourselves. We need to take up our cross. And yet Jesus tells us that this is born out of a desire. It's not just, okay, I'm supposed to do it. I have to do it. I need to debase myself. I need to humble myself. I need to deny myself. It's, you know what? This implies that there is an attraction that is already in place, doesn't there? If any of you desire to come after me, if any of you want or wishes, which is how the Greek word can be translated, want, wishes, desire, if any of you wishes or wants or desires to come after me, some of us are sitting here and we don't even want to come to Jesus. And so to hear that we need to deny ourselves is not something that sounds very attractive to us. Because we have, first of all, not been attracted to the Jesus who is inviting us, have we? We're sitting here and our hearts have not been drawn out into fellowship with Him, into companionship and relationship with Him. And so we're, we're approaching this out of a sense of obligation rather than a sense of desire. It's the same word that Paul uses, by the way, when he says, For it is God who works in you both to will or desire both to will and to do according to his, what? Terrible pleasure, right? No, he says, according to his good pleasure. So God is working on our hearts, and he's trying to draw out this desire from us. Notice this quotation from Ellen White. It's from the book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. She says, seek and you shall find. God is doing what? Seeking you. And the very desire, there's that word, the very desire you feel to come to Him is but the what? Drawing of His Spirit. Wow. She says, yield to that drawing. That sounds a lot easier than maybe we've made it out to be. Yield to it. Just stop resisting that drawing. Christ is pleading the cause of the tempted, the erring, and the faithless. He is seeking to lift them into companionship with himself. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is trying to lift us and draw us into companionship. That sounds like a relational word, doesn't it? God is trying to draw us and and seek uh, after us so that he might bring us into relationship with himself. And so we are told to simply yield to that drawing. And the very desire that we have in our hearts is evidence of the fact that God, by His Holy Spirit, is already working upon our hearts. God, by His Holy Spirit, is already drawing us into a relationship with Himself. And so Jesus says, if any of you want to come after me, if any of you desire to come after me, 
Uh, a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, I should say, back in October, I get an email out of the blue from an individual who has been a well-known figure within the Seventh-day Adventist community of faith for quite a while. If I mention his name, some of you may recognize it. It was the first time I'd ever heard or communicated with this individual. But he just emailed me randomly and said, I just read your book, We Need to Talk. And that's all he said. And I said, oh my goodness, this doesn't sound very good. <laughs> so I was at Camp Lorewald, unable to call at that time, but I could get email. And so I, I emailed them back and I said, okay, I'll call you as soon as I can. So I drove out to the one spot there in Weld where you can get cell phone reception up on the hill overlooking the lake. And I pulled my car over, and of course, the whole time, again, I'd never talked to this guy before. I think to myself, man, he's going to really tear apart my book, I think. So I dialed a number, and after we exchanged pleasantries, he said to me, you know what? I just read your book. And for the first time in my life, I, I, I realized the fact that it is God who is seeking me. This guy has been a fairly well-known Adventist figure for quite a while. He said, I had never, ever, ever stopped to consider the fact that God is actually the one seeking me. I've heard my whole life. I've read. We're supposed to seek God. We're supposed to search for him. He said, I just, it's totally turned the whole paradigm around in my mind. And I don't tell you this to you, of course, to, to have any acclamation for myself, but I'm just blown away by how somebody can be a faithful Leader in the church, and this whole his whole life he's never stopped to consider this. And as I was as I was talking with him, this quotation came to my mind, and I said, you know, I have this quotation that I happened just to read a, a few days ago, and it's a powerful, powerful thought, and I want to share it with him. He said, why don't you email that to me? And so I emailed him this quote by Ellen White, that the very fact that we have the desire to come after God is a reflection of the reality that He is seeking us. So that desire that we have, we can't, we can't ignore that. We can't jump over it and, and go right to the bottom line of what we're supposed to do. Jesus says, if any of you desire to come after me, to heed my invitation for fellowship and relationship, if any of you want to do that, and he's going to tell us now what the next steps are. Some of you are sitting here right now, however, and I've been there many times myself. You say, you know what? I don't have that desire. I don't feel it. Does that mean that God is not drawing me to himself? Does that mean that I may as well just not worry about it because I don't have that feeling? Well, we need to recognize, of course, that this whole issue is not always reflected in the feelings, right? I mean, our feelings can be very, very, very tricky things, can't they? Depending on what we've eaten, how much sleep we've gotten, you know, what our coworker said to us a few hours ago. So faith is not a feeling. And that doesn't mean that faith cannot involve feeling. But we won't always feel like we want to come to Jesus. And so I think if we're in that position, we can be like that father that came to Jesus and said, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. The simple prayer of faith where we say to Jesus, Lord, I don't want to, I don't feel like it, I don't desire to, but Lord, make me willing to even be willing. Give me the desire to want the desire. And God will honor that, won't he? 
God is seeking. He's not going to just give up up on us easily. He is seeking to bring us into full relationship and companionship with himself. So we can just pray that prayer. And it's not like, okay, what, what can I do to, to, to try real hard? Now, there, there may be times where we have to take, out, take a step in faith, even though we don't feel like it. And as we respond by faith to the invitation of Jesus as he's lifted up before us, our feelings will kind of, eventually, they'll, they'll catch up, won't they? All right. Well, Jesus goes on to say, though, if anyone desires to come after me, let him do what? Deny himself. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In in very relational terminology, God and Jesus do not want a divided heart, do they? They don't want just nominal relationship. They don't want just weekend relationships. They don't want just occasional relationship. They want our whole hearts, don't they? They're not satisfied with the divided devotion or divided heart. And so Jesus said, let him deny himself. That word for deny, interestingly, is the same exact word that the gospel, all four gospel writers use to describe what Peter has did with Jesus there in the courtyard as he was on trial. You remember that, don't you? Peter was there in the courtyard, and Jesus even told him ahead of time, you're going to deny me three times. And sure enough, we just read about this this last week at prayer meeting in Dexter. We've been going through the last 13 chapters of the Desire of Ages, and we read that very heart-wrenching account of Peter as he is there in the courtyard, and the three individuals come up to him and say, hey, weren't you, didn't I see you? Wait a minute, weren't you? And Peter says three times, no way. He swears, he even pulls out the king's English. And he says, no way. I wasn't with that man. I don't know what you're talking about. And as soon as the, the cock crowed three times, he knew what he had done. He had denied Jesus instead of denied self. And those, that beautiful description of the desire of ages, I would have loved to have been there and all of the drama. It says that Peter's eyes looked and they locked eyes with Jesus. Just at that very moment, he looked, and his eyes met with Jesus. Jesus knew what had just happened. And what did Peter see in those eyes? He saw forgiveness and love and acceptance. And Ellen White says he did not see any anger. It broke his heart. And he went out and found his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there he wept bitterly. And Peter came away a converted man, didn't he? And from then on, he learned to deny self instead of denying his Savior. Christ is calling for us to deny ourselves because self is the enemy of God. It's what started in the very heart of Lucifer as he was up there in heaven, wasn't it? I, 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 I. If we have embraced a religion, friends, if we have embraced a version of Christianity that does not require the death of self, we are in a false version of Christianity. 
Now, God loves us. He cares about us. He, he embraces us. He accepts us. He forgives us. He wants relationship with us. But he says, you know what? If it's going to be you and me, we're, gonna get, we're really going to get heart to heart. And I've emptied myself of self for you. And I hope and I pray that that will cause you to do the same in your life. Because I, I, I want you to give me all of you. I don't want part of you. Say, oh, pastor, what are, what are you talking about? You know, what do, I, what do I have to give up? And we could talk about a whole list of things, you know, the food, the TV, whatever. We're not talking about that. Those things are all symptoms, aren't they? They're symptoms. Now, that doesn't mean we just ignore the symptoms. But what Christ is really calling from us is to allow self to be crucified with him. Allow our pride and our self-centeredness and our self-absorption and our, our complete focus on getting our own way. He is asking for these things to be removed from our lives. He says, if you want to come after me, if you want to have companionship and fellowship with me, I'm going to want all of you. I'm going to want every ounce of you. I've given you every ounce of myself. I want every ounce of you. Notice this quotation. I love it. Actually, let's look at Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, how many of you ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer? He was a very compelling figure from uh, Germany. He was a German theologian that lived back during the Nazi regime. And he was actually one of the few Christians who said, we're not going to allow this Hitler dude to do what he wants to do. And so he was actually arrested and sent off to a prison camp because he was plotting to assassinate Hitler. Now, I'm a person who's a pacifist, nonviolent, but I'm not going to condemn a man for rising up and trying to get rid of evil. But, you know, he was there in the prison camp, and just a few weeks before the Nazi regime was ended and World War II ended, he was murdered. Sad. His parents didn't hear about it until... They were over in England. They actually heard about it on the radio. And he was a very, very well-known German theologian, one of the most influential theologians in the 20th century. And he wrote a classic book called The Cost of Discipleship. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer is actually the man who coined the phrase cheap grace. Have you heard of that term before? Cheap grace. Notice what he said about cheap grace. You have it there in your study guide. He says, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. That's what we want. We want costly grace. Why? Because it costs God everything to give it, does it not? God can only give grace at an infinite loss to himself. It's not like he can just hand it out and say, okay, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just erase this this exchange. He says, no, I have to give myself completely to you and give myself completely when I give grace. And of course, grace is costly to us, isn't it? Now, it's a great cost, as we're going to find out, but it's a costly exchange. But even more significantly is, is this classic this classic phrase that he shared in the book, The Cost of Discipleship, he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's what Christ calls of you and us, you and I. He says, when you come to me, I'm going to invite you to die. 
I'm going to invite you to allow self to be crucified. And then this quotation from Ellen White, she says, No outward observances can take the place of simple faith and entire renunciation of self. But no man can do what? Empty himself of self. We can only consent. It's an important word, isn't it? We can only consent for Christ to accomplish the work. Then the language of the soul will be, Lord, take my heart, for I cannot give it. It is thy property. Keep it pure, for I cannot keep it for thee. Save me in spite of myself, my weak, unchristlike self. Mold me, fashion me, raise me into a pure and holy atmosphere where the rich current of thy love can flow through my soul. You say, well, pastor, hold on here just a second. What's the big deal about not giving up all to follow Christ? What's the big deal about allowing for us to have a little sense of pride and self, uh, self-satisfaction and self-absorption? What's wrong with that? You know, I was pondering that a few years ago about an individual that I know. As I was acquainted with this individual, it became apparent that he had a great deal of pride in his life. And he was one of these individuals, and I'm not sharing this to criticize the individual. I'm just, it's, a, it's an object lesson. He, he, had a, he, he had the tendency to always want to correct you, you know, when, when there was something that needed correcting, and he would, you know, in a very subtle and gentle way, but in a way that you knew that he felt like he knew more than you, he would take you aside and just say, you know, have you considered doing this? And it just so happened that this individual ran into some challenges relationally. And so as I was thinking about him, I thought, you know, this man has so many awesome qualities. He has so many wonderful things, so many gifts that he brings to the body of Christ. I said, you know, what would, what would be so bad about him having a little bit of pride if he were up in heaven? I honestly thought about this. That's not that big a deal. It's not like he's murdering people. It's not like he's stealing from people. And then all of a sudden dawned on me, and it, it, it allowed for a little self-introspection as well. Can you imagine being up in heaven and Jesus is telling us something and then me or this individual or any of us kind of taking Jesus aside and saying, hey, you know what? Have you thought about doing it this way instead? You know, I think this way is better. I, I think if you considered it from this perspective, you would see a better way. You know, what am I describing right there? Wasn't that kind of the very subtle, the very subtle method of Satan, Lucifer? It just started out very small, didn't it? Hey, have you thought about this? Have you considered this? Maybe if you did it this way. Or, you know, does God really know what's best for us? You see, that pride, that pride, it may start as a little, little seed, right? But it grows, and it grows, and it grows. Till finally, it brings us to Calvary, doesn't it? It says, this is what pride does to God. This is what self does does to God. Either it crucifies Christ or we allow it to be crucified with him. 
So you and I are being invited to allow self to be crucified because here's a little extra insight into it as well. God never asks us to do something that is not in our best self-interest. He's not going to just say, hey, deny yourself and that's just because. I know it's best and don't question me. He says, you know what, I have your, your best interests in mind. I want what's best for you, and the fully satisfied life is the life that is completely selfless. Don't you ever recognize, don't you ever experience that when you actually allow self to be forgotten and you, and you open up yourself to, to give to others, it's like, wow, this is fun. This is satisfying. This gives me the most fulfillment. And I've had that happen to me over and over and over again. And I'm baffled by how much I have to talk myself into being selfless again. Like if I was just running my life based upon what gives me the most satisfaction, it would be like selfless every time. And yet self doesn't go down that easily, does it? Pride and self-interest and self-absorption and self-interest And taking rather than giving. It doesn't go down without a fight. But Jesus is here and has us, wants us to know that He can empty us of self. He can take from our lives and give us, in exchange for that, Himself. He says, Why don't you let me take it from your heart? Why don't you let me take it from your life? And I don't know what that looks like in your life. I have a little idea what it looks like in my life. But at the root of all of it is we, we kind of, I have the feeling that most of us probably have a little bit of an idea as to whether our hearts are divided or not. Right? I shared this yesterday, just this thought on Facebook, just as one of my status updates where I said, how many times have I lied when I have sung the song, I Surrender All? I had a dear sister who I went to seminary with, she said, oh, don't beat yourself up, you know? You know, and, and she was trying to encourage me. I said, I'm not, I'm not beating myself up. There's just this tension that the Christian walk encounters, and that is being assured of God's love, acceptance, faith, and belief in us, yet also recognizing and acknowledging the ways in which we have not allowed God to grow us. We can't get into one ditch or the other. It's what we call the law and the gospel going hand in hand. Being assured of God's love and His acceptance and His faith and His belief and His value of us, yet at the same time saying, Lord, show me how I have not allowed you to grow my life. So how many times have I sung the song that we're about to sing in a few minutes? All to Jesus, I surrender. And I say to myself, yeah, but I really, you know, I kind of have my fingers crossed behind my back. You can have all of me, Lord, but not this one area. That's off limits. You can have 99.9% of me. But Lord, I want to keep this. And again, it's, he's not asking to, us to give it up because he has some self-centered motivation. He's asking us to give it up so that we can enter into full life. I just realized a few days ago, this is... Uh, this is something I'm still working with. I'm just being transparent. You know, I think I've bought into the lie that the Christian life is a boring life that doesn't taste good. 
I think I very subtly bought into that lie. It's a boring life that doesn't taste good. But God wants us to truly enter into life, doesn't he? He wants us to truly enter into companionship and relationship with him. Because I've, I've seen it before. The times where I find the most joy is when I'm heart to heart with my Savior. There was a young lady, young girl, cute little girl. Her name was Taylor. She went to the church school where I used to pastor. She was probably, when this story happened, probably in, I don't remember, third or fourth grade. But as I do here at North Star, and I didn't hear praise, we're going to have a, a bigger, maybe, okay. <laughs> we're going to have a bigger school, hopefully. We'll pray for that. On Monday, we're, we're hoping to have a, one more student. But um, I would go there to, to this little Estabrook school every week, and you know I'd share a little singing with them. We'd sing together, and I'd share a little worship thought, and then we'd have recess. There was 12, 15 students there. And one week I came in and I shared a kind of a similar little just worship thought. I, I went around the room and I asked the kids, what is the most valued possession that you have? What do you like more than anything else? What do you care about? What is it that you would just, you just, you know, if you could only have one thing, what would it be? And they all went around the room, you know, raising their hands, excited. And little Taylor, she raised her hand and she said, my video games. I was kind of surprised that a, a little girl would say that, but, you know, that's all right. So she said, I love my video games. And so we went around the room some more, and after it was all said and done, I, I, I said, now, young people, I'm not telling you that God is asking you this, but what would you say if God asked you to give that thing up? And a couple of them said, oh, yeah, well, you know, it'd be no big deal. The other one said, well, you know, oh, I, I wouldn't want to do that or whatever. And Taylor, in all of her innocence and her cuteness, she said, Oh, I would never give up my video games. Never, never. Those are my video games. I play them all the time. I would never give them up. I said, Okay, that's fine. You know, I'm not, I'm not, asking you, I'm not saying that God would want you to give them up. I'm just asking, you know, our, would our hearts be even willing to do it if for some reason he did ask us that? Well, we went on for the rest of our day, and we you know, played a game, and I was getting ready to leave. And much to my surprise, little Taylor, in all of her innocence, she came up to me just before I was walking out the door, and she said, You know, Pastor Brace, I've been thinking. If Jesus wanted me to give up my video games, I'd give them up for him. And I appreciated it so much because I know that this was something that she was deliberating over. It wasn't a quick, haphazard response. It was something that she had invested in, time and energy and thought over that period of time after I asked the question. She said, I'd be willing to give him up for Jesus. This quotation will end with a couple paragraphs long from Steps to Christ, but Ellen White asked the question, Do you feel that it is too great a sacrifice to yield all to Christ? Ask yourself the question, what has Christ given for me? What has Christ given for me? The Son of God gave what? All. Life 
and love and suffering for our redemption. And can it be that we, the unworthy objects of so great love, will withhold our hearts from him? Every moment of our lives, we have been partakers. How many moments? Every moment of our lives, we have been partakers of the blessings of His grace. And for this very reason, we cannot fully realize the depths of ignorance and misery from which we have been saved. That's interesting. Can we look upon Him whom our sins have pierced and yet be willing to do despite to all His love and sacrifice? In view of the infinite humiliation of the Lord of glory, shall we murmur because we can enter into life only through conflict and self-abasement? The inquiry of many a proud heart is, why need I go in penitence and humiliation before I can have the assurance of my acceptance with God? I point you to Christ. He was sinless, and more than this, He was the Prince of Heaven, But in man's behalf, he became sin for the race. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now notice this. But what do we give up when we give all? What do we give up when we give all? A sin-polluted heart. For Jesus to purify, to cleanse by his own blood, and to save by his matchless love. And yet, men think it hard to give up all. 